Uh, take your Bibles, if you would, and, and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Hear now God's word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Thus ends a reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh God, I am. I praise your name. I'm so excited, Lord, that we get to sit uh, at your feet this morning. And we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, as we need to hear. God, I pray that you would open our ears and our, and our eyes and our hearts to receive your word this day by faith. And God, I pray that we would see the hope that you give us through Jesus Christ. Lord, you are a great and a mighty and a powerful God. And we pray that you would work in our hearts this day as, as we give attention to you. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. The first hundred days. The first hundred days are for a newly elected president of the United States. Very, very, very important days, to say the least. Even though it's a, it's a very short amount of time, after his inauguration, after he's been uh, elected and installed into office, uh, that period of time, that 100 days, is when that newly elected president seeks to set the tone for his entire presidency, whether that be for four years or whether that be for eight years. And, and not only that, but the people are watching. I don't want to say they don't care what the president promised, but um, they're maybe not quite as interested in that as what they are to see what his priorities are. Because usually in those first 100 days is when you what you see that president is all about. You see the priorities, the things he wants, you're gonna see how, what he thinks of our country, you're going to see what he thinks of the people. Does he care? Is it, is it one of those things where he, he cares more about his agenda than he does the country or the people, or does he also care about those that he is leading? And so people are looking to see what kind of leader he will be. And first impressions are very important, are they not? I mean, we, we oftentimes are watching the news to see what will happen. Well, if that is the case with a leader, and I would suggest to you it's true not only for the President of the United States, but really for any leader. I mean, it could be as simple as, as a young couple who's getting married, and she is looking to this man that she has committed her life to for the rest of her life, and she's wondering what kind of leader will he really be and stuff. It could be something as simple as that, but when, if it's the case of a leader... How much more is this true for the promised Messiah as God's people are looking to him 
to see what kind of Messiah he will be. Well, last week we, we looked at the opening words of, of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, in verses 1 through 8, and we already got an impression of who Jesus Christ is. I mean, Mark 1 through 8 is, is really talking about the ministry of John the Baptist and how he is the forerunner of the Christ. But we also see through John's ministry, and as we were looking at who John is, he couldn't help but also see the Christ that was behind John as well. And there's a number of things that, that we learned last week as we looked at that. We saw, first of all, that this Messiah was God himself who was coming to his temple. That he was a God who is, uh, that Isaiah talks about, who is taking his people from captivity. And, and now that they've been set free, he is leading them back to the promised land. We didn't look at the Exodus passage that Mark refers to, but in Exodus, uh, it's, re it's made reference to God as the pillar of fire and, and cloud, that he led his people and he protected them as they went on their way. That, that God, as he's leading his people back to the promised land, is, is a God who is like a gentle shepherd. He's, he's guiding his people like a shepherd does his flock. Even the pregnant sheep have no worries because the shepherd is aware of their needs. And as those lambs are born, he won't drive that flock too hard. That's the picture that you see of, of, of God as he's leading his people back to the promised land. But there's also an aspect in which God is coming to judge his people because they are in uh, exile for a reason, because they rebelled against him, because they saw themselves as God's people and they had more confidence in their nationality than they did in what and, and who God had made them to be in their faith in him. I, I think it's interesting that as you look at uh, the Jews, there's a sense in which as you talk with them, uh, or as you talk with them, as you read about them in the pages of Scripture, that there's sort of this attitude that, hey, you know, I'm a Jew, I'm good. You know, I, it doesn't matter whether I live in obedience to God, whether I demonstrate faith or anything. I'm a Jew, so therefore I'm God's people. And I, and I think every time I read that, I think, wow, that's, that spirit is alive and well, even in the church today in America, is it not? I mean, how many people do you know who profess that they believe in God and they see themselves as a Christian, and yet they haven't darkened the door of a church for months, maybe even for years? That, that really prayer really has no place in their life or Bible reading really has no place except when they come to church on Sunday morning or maybe they come to a Wednesday night study or some other study, then they might read. But other than that, really God has no place. And I don't doubt that such people do believe in God, but it could be different to believe in God and to be his children as well. Well, that's sort of how the Jews were. And they were thinking, well, we're Jews and so we're good. And God is coming to them in judgment and say, no, I want you to repent. I want you to believe in me. I want you to turn from your ways and to trust in me. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm going to raise up a people who consists more than just of Jews, but of Gentiles as well. And I'm going to lead that people through the suffering servant to come to the new Jerusalem, where they will abide with me forever and ever and ever. And so Christ is that one that, that is coming. He is the, the suffering servant. He is God himself. And so John states, even in 
Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 7, he talks about Christ and he goes, you know, there's one that's coming after me that's mightier than I. I mean, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals and to wash his feet. Now, you've got to remember, John, as far as his, uh, his uh, popularity poll, he was pretty high. You know, the people loved John, and they were flocking out from the cities and the metropolitan areas to come out into the rural areas of the wilderness to hear him preach. And it says that many, as he preached a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, many people repented and were baptized. And so John is, is very popular, but he said, you know what, the one that's coming after me, I'm like nothing compared to him. And so there's sort of, in one sense, if you read Mark's gospel, if you listen to the things that John says, I don't think the people got it, but if you did do that, you would come with high expectations of this Jesus. You would think, wow, he's going to be a great uh, leader. But as we come to the ninth verse of Mark's gospel, um, Jesus appears on the scene, but he doesn't really come as one that you might expect. Uh, actually, he looks pretty ordinary. We read, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's it. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, no great fanfare, uh, but he's from Nazareth. He, he's not even from Jerusalem or Judea or one of these other metropolitan areas. He's sort of from the hills. He's actually from Galilee. You know, he's more of a, a country bumpkin. You know, so he's like maybe more than ordinary. I don't know. Uh, but but if, if, as you look at Jesus, outward appearance can be deceptive. And, and so John sort of walks us through a, a record of events here in this passage. And he really just gives us bare bones uh, on, on these significant events. There are other Gospels that unpack these in much more detail. But, but Mark, he just sort of gives us bare bones. And yet, in the brevity that he gives us, he helps us to see Jesus more fully. I could take a sermon and preach on his baptism, preach on, on the Father uh, speaking to him. I could take another sermon and preach on the temptation. But, but I think Mark wants us to take these things together, that we might see Jesus both as the Savior of sinners, but also as the victorious Savior. And so I want us to look at these points this morning. First of all, the Savior of sinners, uh, verses 9 through 11. As I said, Jesus doesn't come with great fanfare. He's, he's baptized along with those who are confessing their sins. Now, if you could, use your imagination uh, once again. Imagine that in front of Jesus may be a drunk who had come out to hear John preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and he's being baptized now as he has heard John's message, gospel message, and he has repented. And maybe behind that drunk is, is a housewife with the perfect marriage and the perfect life and the perfect children, and, you know, people just want to be like this woman, and yet she knows the reality of her household experience. Her kids are not perfect. Her marriage is not perfect. She actually uh, knows the sin of her heart. And as she's listening to John's message and she hears his call to repent, she knows that she must do so. 
because she sees the sin of her heart. And so she stands waiting for her turn to step into the water and to be baptized. And of course, behind her is the prostitute who's been with many men. And, and she listens to John's preaching and his words expose the emptiness of her soul and her life. And so she turns to God as John commands in his preaching uh, to be repentant. Behind her is the successful merchant who has everything. Well, maybe not everything. Uh, John's preaching has opened his eyes to see that the things that he's been pursuing all of his life will one day pass away. And he's convicted by John's words and recognizes his sin of greed and his rebellion against God. And so he stands in line to be baptized. And of course, then there's the party animal, you know, the the lady who's drinking and sleep, sleeping around. There's the government official, the successful banker. Oh, and then there's Jesus. Jesus is waiting to be baptized. Now, you might ask, why? I mean, if you look at verse 4, we, we read here that John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And, and when a person is baptized, they are declaring, first of all, that I'm a sinner and I deserve God's judgment. Uh, baptism also speaks, I know, of, of cleansing. It speaks of the Holy Spirit. But, but first, it agrees with God's perception of us and our sinful condition before God and our need for, for judgment. And here is Jesus standing in the midst of sinners, looking like a sinner, and outwardly there appears to be no difference. But inwardly, Jesus is pure. He is holy. He is free from sin. So what kind of Messiah is Jesus? You know, we talk about leaders and what kind of leaders are they? You know, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? Well, he is one who identifies with sinners and he does so in the most intimate way. The Son of God saying that I stand for you. I stand with you. I'm not ashamed to be called one of you. And so Jesus is, is telling John to treat me like a sinner because it is God's plan to treat Jesus like one of us and not only like a repentant sinner but, but as a representative sin-bearing Savior is who Jesus Christ is. Jesus was there to fulfill all righteousness. If you look back at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, his account of Jesus' baptism, you see that there's a little bit more that goes on in the dialogue. That when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, John goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I think we got this backwards. Actually, Jesus, I ought to be baptized by you. And, and Jesus says, no, you need to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus had come to save sinners, and he did so not by remote control. He didn't do so by standing at a distance from us and saving us who were over there. He comes by standing where we stand and identifying with us in our need of God's salvation. That Jesus had come to do the will of the Father, which was to save sinners. And Jesus also is publicly identifying with the mission that the Father had given to him, saying, Father, I will do whatever it takes to do what you sent me to do. And so Jesus doesn't come merely to stand beside us, but to stand before the Father as one of us. I mean, imagine if you would that 
you're playing baseball with, with your friends in, in the front yard, okay? And, and your best friend, he hits the ball, and it's a, it's a great hit, but it goes right through the bedroom window, okay? If you're a good friend, as he goes and he is standing before his parents, waiting to incur their wrath, or at least that's what it feels like from his perspective, you know, that he's going to get in big trouble, you stand there with him. And to and support him, to encourage him, right? You're there with him. You want to help him. That would be great, right? Well, that's not what Jesus does for us. He doesn't stand there to root us on. He actually instead stands in our place before the Father and says, I am guilty and I will take and incur the wrath that is there. So he doesn't stand with us. He stands before the Father as one of us. And, and his baptism is his inauguration into his role as the priest who will take away the sin of men and women in order to bring us the forgiveness of God. I like what one preacher said. He said uh, on this verse, he says, Mark spends more time addressing what happens after the baptism than he actually does in the baptism himself. He, he actually just says that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. But if you read on in verses 10 and 11, uh, you see that there's a lot that happens after the baptism as well. Uh, you see that the heavens are open. Um, verse 10 says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, the first thing we saw actually, is uh, verse 10 where he said immediately he saw. Okay, now who's the he there? Um, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Well, if you, if you look at verse 11, is, is God is speaking, the he that he's speaking to is Jesus. He's speaking to Jesus. He said, you are my beloved son. Okay, now, uh, so Mark is putting the focus on what Christ saw. Now, we do know from other gospel accounts that at least John the Baptist heard this voice too as well. Jesus isn't the only one. If you look at Matthew chapter 3, if I could refer to Matthew's account again, verses 16 and 17, we read, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. He didn't say, You are my beloved Son. He said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so the Father was speaking more than just to Jesus. He was speaking at least to John the Baptist and maybe to others who are around him. We don't know from the text exactly. But here in Mark, Mark puts the focus on what Christ saw and he heard. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, it's interesting when you compare the accounts of Jesus' baptism and what happens afterwards. Uh, the other gospel writers use a much more anemic word. They said the heavens were open. Okay, That's sort of like a la-di-la-di-da-da word, you know? At least compared to Mark's account, you know, because... Mark here uses a word that's, that's rather uh, powerful. 
Uh, he uses a word that's, that has its root in our word for schizophrenic. Okay? It, it, it's, it's a schism. It means to tear apart. If, if there's a schism, there's a, a tearing apart of uh, sides. And so it's a, a forceful verb that, that reflects a metaphor for God sort of breaking into human experience to deliver his people. And, and we see this in the Old Testament in a number of places, but let me just share one with you. In, in Isaiah chapter 64, if you want to turn to Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 3, the prophet is crying out in a time of trouble, okay? And, and he's wanting God to be present with his people again. So this is what we read in Isaiah's account. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. This is the prophet speaking to God. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. And so what Mark is saying here is, is that God has, has uh, come, that Yahweh has come, that he has broken into the human experience. Now, Mark uses this word in another place in his gospel, at the end of his gospel. If you look at verse 15, or excuse me, chapter 15, verse 38, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and, and he's breathed his last. And then in Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 38, we read these words. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was torn in two from top to bottom. And, and what Mark is doing here is, is I, I would suggest to you that he is, is like putting bookends, okay, in, in his gospel. At the beginning, you see God that is like tearing into human history, okay, uh, and, and to, to speak to his son. Uh, but then uh, he's coming to, to humanity. He's breaking into our experience to provide a way to once again have a relationship with him. And then at the end of that gospel, we see God actually accomplishing that through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, as the temple curtain is ripped and now we have access into the Holy of Holies, that we might have a relationship with God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Now, I say that because you may be here this morning and you may feel dirty because of your sin, that your sin has corrupted you all the way down to the core of your being, and you sense that you're not worthy to come into God's presence. And the reality is you're not. None of us are. That's why we need Christ's sacrifice. But what God has done is he has torn open the barrier and you can now come back into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And you may be here this morning and you may be his child and you may know that you have access to God through Christ. But maybe this week in your struggle with sin, maybe in this week in the things that have happened and the way that, that you have treated others, you're just not feeling very saved, if I could say that. that, that you're struggling and you're wrestling and Satan has whispered his lies into your ear and you feel like dung, you feel like trash, you just think there's no way that God could love me and yet we need to understand that God has provided a way through his son. 
Well, Mark goes on in his gospel, and, and he not only talks about the heavens being torn open, but as it is torn open, uh, we see the Spirit descends upon Christ. Now, it's, it is significant um, that it's only after Jesus identifies himself with his mission to save sinners that the Spirit descends on him like a dove. In verse 10, we read, He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, Jesus was uniquely filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. He is the Son of God. And yet, we're told that the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Now, why is that necessary? Well, if, if you think about uh, what the Old Testament says, uh, passages like Isaiah 42, verse 1, um, makes reference to uh, the servant of God and the Spirit of God. We read in Isaiah 42, 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. In other words, God had promised that he would send a servant who would be greater than all his other servants, okay? And, and it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom I, my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And so God had promised that he would send his spirit and, and anoint him with the spirit to fulfill his mission to be the savior of the world. And so Jesus is given the Holy Spirit for his ministry and his mission. And if Jesus in his humanity needed the, the enabling work of the Holy Spirit, knowing that he could do nothing without the Holy Spirit, how much more do we need the enabling power of the Holy Spirit at work in us as we do our ministry and our mission that God has, has called us to? And, and let, me, let me just caution you. When you hear that word ministry, you may think only in terms of what you do in the church. And that's true. You can have a ministry in the church. But you know, husbands, you have a ministry to love your wife. Wife, you have a ministry to be the helpmate to your husband. Kids, you have a ministry to obey your father and your mother. If you're here today and you're single, you have a ministry that's it's very unique in the sense that you're not bound by and encumbered by all the different cares that those who are married are. And so you have freedom. You have freedom to get together with that friend who uh, needs somebody to sit down with them and have a cup of coffee and to love them and to build a relationship with them and to share Christ with them. You don't have to go check with your, your spouse to make sure that you can do that. You can just do that at the drop of a hat. You have great, a great ministry that is there. So that ministry might take many different forms. You see, it's, it's in the frailty of our flesh that the Lord Jesus is to fulfill all righteousness and to be Satan for our atonement. And Jesus needed in his humanity that moment-by-moment -moment help and support and wisdom and strength that only the Holy Spirit can give. You, you see, we, we have a picture here of the Father equipping his son to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus could not have done his ministry if the Father had not given the Holy Spirit to him to strengthen and to enable him. And, and, and I think as we look at this, we see that there's a principle here that, that we can take to heart. That really everyone that God calls to serve him, that, uh, 
to understand that those people God also equips for that service and that ministry. It may be that you're here today and, and you sense that God has called you to a particular ministry and yet you feel woefully inadequate to do that. You've actually been arguing with the Lord about this for quite some time. You say, God, I can't do that. Lord, I can't. I can't fulfill that ministry. I can't do that in the church. I can't reach out to my neighbor and, and talk to them. Or, Lord, I can't build this relationship with this person. There's just no way that I can do that. We, we feel overwhelmed at times by our own inadequacies that raise their ugly heads continually. We, we see how lacking we are in the gifts we need for such ministry. But if God has called you to a service, you can be sure that he will equip you and give you all that you need for that service. He will be with you. God is in you. And he will work through you, brothers and sisters, promising never to leave nor forsake you. And you can trust him as he calls you to this service. And so we should never doubt or fear that God will withhold his graces and his gifts from us as we are needed in service uh, to him. Well, we see that not only did he pour out his spirit, but he did so like a dove. Now, if you want an interesting read, you just pull out some commentaries and just do some reading on what they think this whole thing with the dove is referring to. There's, yeah, there's a lot of reading that you could do on that. But if I could simplify it, I think the simplest way to look at this is to look back at Genesis 8, and you'll see in that chapter that Noah sends out the dove uh, from the ark, and the dove goes out, and he comes back, and then he sends him out again, and the dove eventually returns with an olive branch, signifying that, that new life, or the new beginning, or a new creation. And, and Jesus Christ himself has come to be the new creation. Uh, I think oftentimes when we think of new creation, we think of ourselves as being new creatures in Christ. We are the new creation. And that's true, but it's only true to the degree that we are united to Christ. Because God is beginning a, a new creation in his son. And that's why Jesus is called the second Adam. And so you see the heavens that are being torn open and the Spirit of God that's being poured out upon Christ. But you also see the Father's response. Uh, notice how the Father responds. He says in, in verse 11, And a voice came from heaven, You are my, my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, notice what happens here. Um, Christ receives the Father's affirmation. As Jesus in his humanity embarks on this great mission to save humanity, the Father pours out his reassurance and his love upon Jesus' human soul. If you think about it, one day, uh, not yet, but one day, Jesus Christ will do the unthinkable. Jesus will go and he will bear the unthinkable for you and I. He, he, will, he who knew no sin will be made sin in the presence of God so that he would plunge beyond the bottom of finite misery into the place where there's no escape and no mercy and only wrath. And in that moment, Jesus will lose all sense of himself as the Son of God, and he will only see himself as the sin of the world. And Christ will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus will see himself as blackness and wickedness, in the presence of God as his avenger and as his judge, as he stands before him for our sin. 
And so as Jesus' association with us becomes absolute, the cost for him becomes infinite. And brothers and sisters, we need to take that to heart. You know, we oftentimes talk about Jesus Christ dying on the cross as if it's no different than saying, I have to go to the grocery store and buy a gallon of milk. It's just a fact of statement. There's just not much to it. But there was much that occurred when our Savior died upon the cross and He faced the wrath of God standing in our place. And the Father is saying, Son, in that moment you might wonder, do I love you? And so as you stand here in the dirty water of the Jordan River, joining yourself with these sinners, looking at the reality that one day you will face the cross, I want you to know my response, that I love you and I am well pleased with you. I have never loved you more than I love you now. Isn't that a great picture of God's love for his son? But isn't there an encouragement for you and I in that this morning? That God the Father would send his beloved son to rescue you. That the Father would send him on a rescue mission beyond the gates of hell into the very depths for you. Now think about how much God must love you. So my question for you this morning is, would you love him in return? Or would you love your sin more? Will you look at your sin and call it my precious? Or will you part with your sin for your Savior? Maybe you're here this morning and you've not parted with your sin. And so you ask, how can God love me? I've sinned again and again and again. And Pastor Rick, again this week, I gave into that sin. And I'm standing here ashamed before God. But I want you to understand that God says to you, I love you. Now you say, how can you be sure of that? Well, first of all, I want to encourage you, don't look at your feelings. Our feelings could be very deceptive. But look at the love that God has shown for you. And that while you were still a sinner, the Father did not withhold His Son for you. You see, God is not reluctant to save His people. I don't know where we get that idea. But sometimes I think we almost think that way, that God is very reluctant to save me. And I think in, in, in thinking that, we are, we are revealing that we really don't understand the magnificent love that God has for his people. Well, it's interesting that after Jesus publicly commits himself to his mission and his ministry as the Savior of the world, and the Father gives uh, his beloved Son his, the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, and the Father assures the Son of his love, that the first thing that the Holy Spirit does is drive Jesus out into the wilderness where he is tempted uh, for 40 days by Satan. But that brings us to our second point, the victorious Savior, in verses 12 and 13. And you can be assured this is a much shorter point, so you can relax. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. You know, when you and I think of the work of the Holy Spirit, we oftentimes think of him as the comforter. We think of him as the one who guides and who leads. 
the one who gives us power and the one who gives us strength to obey. But do we really think about the Spirit as one who drives, right? I mean, it says that he drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Now, that doesn't mean that he forced Jesus against his will, but there was a strong leading that the Spirit of God gave to the Son of God. And, and, and if we're honest, there are times when the Holy Spirit takes us to places that we don't want to go. Is that not right? I mean, I was just th reflecting upon Psalm 23. I really enjoyed that series, and, and, it, and the Lord oftentimes brings it to mind. And I was just even thinking about the progression that happens in that psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So God is leading us there, but where does he lead us? Well, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's sometimes where his leading takes us. And there's a place that are difficult, those things that are impossible to us. And here the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Now, why does he do that? Well, the text doesn't specifically tell us that, uh, not even in the other Gospels per se, but it would appear that, uh, that the Spirit did that to, to test Jesus' resolve in filling all righteousness. Would he do that? What would he do as he stood against Satan? You know, it's always easy to make great promises when everything's going well, but it's another thing to undergo great difficulty or temptation and to stand fast in regards to those promises. And so what we see here is the king of heaven and the prince of darkness going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, fighting it out, battling it out. And, and we see here Satan who is the accuser. And it's interesting because Mark's gospel is the only gospel that calls him Satan. The other gospel writers call him the devil, the deceiver. But here he's called Satan, the accuser. So you can only imagine what he was doing as, as he was accusing Satan. And so you see Jesus, who has, has stood before the Father, and the Father has affirmed him and encouraged him and told him of his great love for him, and yet now, immediately afterwards, he's standing before Satan, who no longer affirms him, but accuses him and, and challenges him. And he does so for 40 days in the wilderness, surrounded by wild animals. Now, what a contrast that is with Adam, right? As Adam is being tempted by Satan, right? He is, do, he is, he, he is being tempted in a lush garden, surrounded by animals that he has named, and so therefore he has authority over them. I mean, Adam is in the most cushy circumstances he could be in, and yet he fails in his temptation. But Christ comes as the second Adam, and he stands uh, as Satan comes to tempt him. Jesus encounters temptation in the world, not the world as Adam found it, but as the world, as Adam left it, that's where Jesus is being tempted. And Jesus goes through the temptation in the wilderness and, and will bring God's people on a new exodus into the ultimate land of promise, the new Jerusalem. You see, Israel was tempted in the wilderness, and because they succumbed to sin and they rebelled against God, they wandered for how long, kids? Forty years. And yet now we have Christ being tempted for 40 days, right? 40 days and defeats Satan. And so Jesus succeeded where Adam 
in Israel failed. But I don't want you to think that because Mark's gospel account is brief, that Jesus' temptation was easy. Um, Mark states that Jesus needed help. As a matter of fact, in Mark 1, 13, we read, And the angels were ministering to him. They came to Jesus to minister to him. Now, we don't know what that ministering looks like, but if you recall in Luke's gospel account how Jesus agonized as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? How tough that was? Even sweat drops of blood? Well, let's look at Luke's account. If we could, Luke 22, beginning with verse 41. Luke 22 beginning with verse 41. And he, that is Jesus, withdrew from them, his disciples, about a stone's throw, and knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This was a, a time of extreme agony for Jesus as he was preparing to face the cross to take our sins upon himself and to be rejected by the Father. And, it, and, and as he's doing so, we read, Nevertheless, he says, Not my will, but your will. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This was such an agonizing experience for Christ that God in his grace sent an angel to strengthen and to minister to Jesus. And, and, and so there's, there's great comfort, you know, uh, as we look at this, to think that this battle must have been great, that God would send his angels then to minister to Jesus as, as he has been battling Satan. And there's great comfort here for us, too, as well, in, in our struggles with temptation. You know, I think some in the church today, some... Christians mistakenly think that we no longer have to struggle with temptation. You know, I'll just simply give in to my sin, right? All I have to do is ask God to forgive me, so I can just give in to the sin, and then afterwards I'll just ask God to forgive me, and everything will be okay. The problem with that kind of thinking is, not only is it not unbiblical, and as Steve Brown would say, it's, it's straight from hell and smells like smoke, that, you know, not only is that the problem, but the problem with that really is this that there is no repentance with such an attitude. There's no repentance. There's no sense of, of turning from our sin. There's just a sense of succumbing and giving in to that sin. And so that's really not the posture of a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. God calls us to, to repent. And, and so such thinking is not biblical or godly. But as we struggle with temptation, we have one in heaven who understands our temptation because he was tempted like us. And he will minister to us in our times of temptation. Remember that, brothers and sisters, this week. As you were encountering temptation. As, as you were feeling uh, the forces of Satan. Now, most of us are not big enough fish that we've ever probably met Satan himself. We just get the little underlings, right? They come tempt us because we're just small fish, all right? But just even as the demons are coming uh, to, to tempt you, remember that... Jesus will come, that we don't have an unfeeling, remote, distant God, but that Jesus himself sits at the right hand of the Father, one who has been touched by the feelings of our frailness. Jesus understands. 
Jesus has gone through it. And Jesus is able to help us because he understands temptation. Okay, Jesus knows what it's like to be human. Brothers and sisters, we are, we are not alone. But Jesus does more than understand our struggle. But he is the one who has crushed the head of Satan, the serpent. Jesus has struck Satan with that fatal blow from which the devil can never recuperate. The king of heaven has annihilated the prince of darkness. And it is this great king who is present with us through his Holy Spirit in our times of temptation. And so as you are going through those times of temptation this week, brothers and sisters, call out to Jesus. Call out to Jesus. He understands. He knows. He will strengthen you. You know, as we think about Jesus as, as the Messiah, brothers and sisters, what a glorious Messiah we have. Do we not? We don't have a, a, a God, a, a king who, who marches into this world and who, you know, has this agenda of the law that he's going to come and he's going to crush us with. But we have a Messiah who understands our struggle. We have a God who understands that our greatest need is our sin. And he comes to identify with us. He comes to promise us hope that he will deliver us and he will give us uh, forgiveness of sins as, as we repent and as we turn to him. And even in that, he sends us his Holy Spirit to enable us. And even as we encounter Satan and in the skirmishes of this life, and, and brothers and sisters, you know, you got to remember, look at Ephesians 6, right? On spiritual warfare. Uh, look at the context of that. Where does that come? It comes right after the section where Paul talks about what the Christian household looks like, right? What, how husbands and wives are to relate to one another, how parents are to relate to their children and children to their parents, right? And then after that section, he talks about spiritual warfare. Because where does spiritual warfare happen? In everyday life. In the mundane things of life is where that temptation comes. And we have a Savior who understands and is great and mighty and victorious to help us in those times of need. Amen? So we don't have a Messiah who is distant. We have a Messiah who is close and who loves us. You know, um, as you think about this past week and, and, and the things that have, have gone on, I want us just to, to take a few moments. And I want us just to be still before the Lord as we have heard the word of God preached. And I want you just to, to apply these things that you have heard. And maybe you need to get right with the Lord. Maybe you've been playing with the Lord and you actually need to become a believer. I don't know. But wherever you're at in your life, come to him and take those few moments and, and, and do business with the Lord and ask him to work in your hearts. Please bow with me if you would. Maybe even in this moment, you might need to be right with someone else. You may need to go and ask someone 
for their forgiveness and be made right with them. Lord, we come to you today and we feel the frailty of our humanness and, and of our sin. But we thank you that we have a Savior. A Savior that identifies with us as sinners. A, a Savior who is victorious. What a great hope that we have, Lord, as we, as we come to you today to know that we are not a people that are forsaken, but we have a king who loves us, a king who is intimate with us, a, a king who will, will set us free. Lord, we thank you that in you, that there is true forgiveness. And we just pray, Lord, that you would work in our midst. Father, that in our households, that this forgiveness would be a commonplace. That, Lord, even as we sin against one another, that there would be repentance and there would be forgiveness. And, Lord, there would be rejoicing as sinners experience the forgiveness that only comes in Jesus Christ. Oh, we thank you and we praise you, O oh God, that you have done that which we could have never have done for ourselves. Lord, let us never forget what great love that you have shown to us as your children. Oh, may we praise and glory in your name all week we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.